Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Nightlight. Yesterday afternoon's special show with Gary Lockman was very interesting, but uh, we should have archived uh, the 10-minute discussion after we were off the air. I told Gary about my meeting with his former bandmates of Blondie and showed him a photo. Then Barbara started getting nervous that I was going to ask Gary to do a music show. Then Gary told me he he wrote a book about his work in the early days of Blondie and with Iggy Pop and playing at CBGB. And so Barbara's nightmare came true. Gary will return to cover his music uh, career and early the development of early punk rock. Uh, so by the end of the year, ho- hopefully we'll have Barbara singing as a teenage lobotomy. Uh, but in, anyhow, uh, Iggy was a high school classmate with Bill Kirchin, and I've met him a couple times. And Bill's also good friends with Arlen Roth, uh, one of our other musical guests. So what we found during that 10 minute discussion is, you know, these common threads of, you know, people, you know, kind of know, not like I exchange uh, Christmas cards with Debbie Harry, but, uh, but, you know, there's some of these uh, people, you know, kind of know when, you know, just weaving these uh, ideas together. And that was the, formation of this nightlight part two show and you know i've heard about the stuttering for 40 years and you know barbara and i you know, just really aren't interested in appealing to you know listeners who want to hear only the safe topics and like the you know the paranormal trifecta the same ufo theories and ghosts with no proof uh, making oneself a cult leader by espousing Hermes was right, you know, we're, uh, 
you know, really trying to be innovative and uh, move away from the limited topics that got me fired. And, and I think that was what came out during that uh, discussion yesterday <clears throat> after, after the show. It, it was, uh, you, we got, you know, really um, creative with a lot more ideas. And I think we're probably going to develop maybe about three or more shows out, out of uh, yesterday's guest. It, it was just, um, you just see some things clicking there. So, um, where was I? Um, but, and we really are trying to uh, develop unique shows and uh, we've really appreciated all the feedback uh, we've received from the listeners and it's helping us to grow. So, um, yeah, we are trying to uh, offer something fresh and we're working on that each day. And, you know, we have a couple return guests uh, tonight and, but that doesn't mean I'm contradicting what I just said. Our, our guests are uh, creative, multi-talented, and faceted, and have insightful commentary that they want to impart to our listeners. Uh, Heather Arnold, who has been, or who was a guest with us uh, last year, uh, talking about the Giants in Aruba her trip to Easter Island, explorations of stone chambers in New York and New England is with us, as well as Dennis Stone, owner of America's Stonehenge. So welcome, Heather and Dennis. How, how are you two tonight? Great. Thanks, Mark. So good to be back. Thank you very much for having me again, especially with my friend Dennis. So it's oh, good to be hey, back. Hey, thank, thank you, you. Heather. <laughs> Yeah, thank you, Mark and Barbara and Heather. It's nice to hear from all of you. Happy to be back again. Yeah, so Dennis, um, since you were with us uh, last time, um, there was a LIDAR video released of America Stonehenge. can you tell us a little bit about who, who uh, did the uh, photography and animation? Uh, how did that project develop? Uh, what was the purpose? Yeah, Mark, uh, we got a call back. I think it was either late March, I'm uh, sorry, early March or late February of this year. And um, I just had done another radio show, and the host um, had mentioned something about having me back on. And he has kind of a national uh, show, and he's really into tech, you know. So he said, if you get LIDAR, mm-hmm. ground penetration radar, or and I mentioned thermal imaging after he mentioned that. Uh, he said, uh, you know, come back on, and we'll talk about that, because he really, he's really into that. And uh, just, you know, right after that, this gentleman from Connecticut, from Suffield, his name is Tom uh, Elmore. And he uh, approached me, you know, by just giving us a call and saying, um, I've heard about your site. Um, I've been to uh, some archaeological meetings uh, in Connecticut and heard all about you, and I'm very interested in seeing your site and then perhaps uh, doing a LIDAR project on your site. And he explained what LIDAR can do and what equipment he had. 
And uh, we got really excited about it. You know, he talked uh, a couple times on the phone, and then he made a, a couple-hour drive up here. And um, he started to kind of a walk over the whole hill with me. We have about 106 acres. And then he kind of picked out the area that he wanted to begin his project with. And uh, I believe that day he even uh, got the equipment out and got all suited up and everything. He has to have all sorts of stuff on. And um, he started his project that particular day, and I think that was in April. And since then, he's been back about five or six times and collecting data. A few times he's had some technical issues with the, with the equipment. Um, other than that, the equipment's been pretty, pretty good. Uh, it's made in Florida, and he supposedly has the only uh, device, um, you know, I believe, on the East Coast, or at least he did. You know, that could change any day when they're selling the equipment. But he's also mapping, um, you know, landscapes with it. And he's actually a landscape, I believe, architect. And uh, that's what his mm. career was. So he kind of got into this. He went to college for that and everything. <clears throat> and uh, according to his company in Florida that he bought the equipment from, uh, he's doing the only type of work like this, again, on the East Coast. And, of course, he had one of the only pieces of equipment on the East Coast like this. It's actually handheld LIDAR. And it's... Um, uh, pretty expensive. I think the unit's like over 50 grand, and then he has to have like a supercomputer to handle and process all the data, which he's now waiting for a brand new computer, as a matter of fact, and that's the only holdup from um, doing um, the finishing this up, actually. <clears throat> and his equipment, um, like when you have an aircraft uh, LIDAR, he said that basically you get four to six points per square meter. Um, and with drone, you get about 300 to 400 points per square meter. And with this uh, LIDAR, and it's handheld again, he gets something like 150,000 points per square meter. Um, some of that was Greek to me, but basically it's about resolution and how, you know, how detailed and how small an yeah. object you can see. And this can see down to about one to three centimeters. And uh, it's pretty amazing because wow. I've had LIDAR from about, the whole country supposedly has been LIDAR'd by 2018. From coast to coast, that's what I understand. I don't know if it was completed or not, but it doesn't have that much resolution. We have some great big uh, black and white um, prints made up there. Oh gosh, probably two feet across of the lidar of our site, and it's kind of blurry. You can't really make out too much. You can see the walls barely. They kind of when we first got it, it was like, oh, that's pretty cool because it strips away the trees. You can see the lay of the land because you have a forest up there. It hides a lot of things. And that, so that was kind of cool when we got the uh, prints a few years ago. But after seeing what he has, his LiDAR has a camera, high-definition <clears throat> color camera on the top of the unit also that can see 250 degrees uh, above, kind of over you, kind of like a dome, and 360 degrees around you. And the LiDAR is uh, 16 cameras, or 16 sending units, I guess. And um, so it can see out to about 80 meters, about 260 feet or so it will measure out to. And when you see the image, you swear that he's using a drone or he's in an airplane because it looks like you're looking down from above. And it's all done at ground level, walking around with this. And you can walk pretty quick with this equipment. Um, and um, so you can cover a lot of area very quickly with this. And um, so we have done the main site, which is one acre. And then we also did uh, 15 acres around that, which include the astronomical alignment, four sites. So he kind of did the one acre and got that ready and put that out on the video that you, that we put out that you were talking about. 
and the next 15 acres will be done. And basically, you're just looking at pictures of, you know, of the LIDAR. When you use the computer, you can do everything. You can go above. You can, go, you can zoom down. You can look at something probably the size of about maybe a quarter. And you can back it up and see the whole 15 acres from way above, you know. So it's just quite amazing. <clears throat> we think we can use it for also um, for measuring the size of structures because we're very interested in seeing if a standard unit of measure was used at our site, um, as we've talked about before. So this may be the first step in getting accurate measurements down to about a centimeter. If you want to get more accurate than that, I was talking to Tom. He goes, yeah, then you get to laser scanning. And these devices are set up on tripods. It's a very time-consuming process, and the unit itself is about $150,000. So time and money, I mean, it really adds up quickly. So that could be a very, very expensive project like they did down at Machu Picchu if you wanted to get something really, really accurately measured. But his equipment can go down to about a centimeter or two, which will be great to get us started on measuring the structures uh-huh. and seeing, again, if we had something like a megalithic yard perhaps used on our site. So he is waiting. I just he just sent me a message tonight, and I replied to it. I'm waiting for a uh, reply from him to see if his new computer came in. Because if it does, and if it works correctly, you know how all these, you know, um, <clears throat> electronics and everything. We always having some problems with them. Uh, he might have the uh, 15 acres done pretty quickly with his computer, and then we'll put out a new video with that. And then I guess uh, I'll have to talk to him about how we can actually put it into our computer you know, and actually use it. Because if there's something hiding up there that you can't see with your eyes, this LIDAR may detect it, and then our archaeologists would be interested in doing a shovel test pit, or what we call an STP, a 50-centimeter diameter hole, and you start digging, you look for any kind of, you know, artifacts or, you know, geological information too. But if you see an artifact, what you'd want to do is lay out the meter squares, divide that into four quadrants, and do a full-scale archaeological dig. So this LIDAR can come in very, very handy for that kind of thing. So we're very excited about it. It gives you both, um, you know, kind of like radar, but it's a laser image, plus the color picture is over the top of this. So when you're looking at a feature, you can actually see it now. The old LIDAR, again, it wasn't that great. In conjunction with this, uh, there's a lady that's a friend of his, and she's from, um, I believe it's Waltham, Massachusetts, and she has um, ground penetration radar. And she's been up a couple times already. And for the first time, I guess, ever, they figured out a way of blending the GPR imaging with the LIDAR imaging so you kind of can see above and below. So if you're looking at a wall, you can also see below the ground where the wall goes down to, the, say, the bedrock, which we've been looking at on her ground penetration radar. So this will be kind of cutting-edge you know, uh, technology and um, being used at our site is pretty cool. You know, a Stone Age site with the latest kind of technology. Uh, so when it's all done, we should have a 3D image uh, above the ground in, in some areas where the ground penetration radar has been used uh, below the ground, which will look pretty cool. Some of the underground drains we're going to try to map, the fault line that bisects the hill east to west. It's part of the Clinton-Newbury fault line that runs from Newbury, Newport, uh, Massachusetts, it heads just south of us uh, a few miles down uh, below the Merrimack River to Worcester, Mass, and then it bends and heads down to North Stonington, Connecticut, where there's about 8,000 features, some of them quite similar to our site. Uh, this radar can actually see part of one of the tentacles of that fault that comes right through the middle of our site. And we're going to map that using that radar. So uh, some kind of exciting things coming up, and I think maybe within a month we might have that 
project, uh, at least for the 15 acres done. For the other 90 acres, that would be something in the future we'd like to do. So uh, that's where it stands right now. Yeah, uh, Dennis, and Tom's uh, LIDAR image of the fault line that runs through the property is, you know, like you said, very detailed. Uh, uh, the precision of, you know, where it's going, uh, the yeah, he, he had one view of uh, like ground level where you, you could see one one side's a little higher than the other. It, it was you know just the detail that this technology is bringing out uh, is just really captivating. And I, you know, did did you have any idea of you know? say even 20 years ago what is on your property and you know how it you know this technology is revealing what is there uh, his piece of equipment's only about 18 months old you know so if you went back a little more than you know say you went back two years ago his equipment wasn't even available um so it, it's pretty cool. We did use uh, ground penetration radar in the 90s. Uh, today, it's much more advanced. Um, in fact, it was manufactured right down the street from us uh, in a facility that also made the uh, sonar that was used to find the uh, Titanic. Um, and they were both sister companies. And since then, uh, the LIDAR, I mean, the uh, ground penetration radar people have moved uh, downtown Salem, and then they moved 20 miles away to another town, so we kind of lost track of them. Although this lady that's using her radar, she uses one that's manufactured both um, that same company, but also one out of, I think she said Toronto, Canada is where one of her units comes from. So she's using both, you know, some local as well as a Canadian product, which is very good too. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's hard to believe this, this technology. I think once we map uh, that fault line, we'll be able to see if it, in fact, it is a fault line, we believe it is, and it's part of, again, the Clinton Newbury. I've had geologists say it is, you know, but this will really show it where it goes across the entire hill, and about 1,000 feet from the main site is a glacial cliff shelter, and in 1958-59, they did excavations, and they found pottery dating back about 2,500 years, middle woodland period pottery out there. It's a cool, beautiful area overlooking a river called the Spicket River, which goes into the Merrimack and then out to the ocean. Um, and I was out there about two months ago, and I was saying, I wonder if I can find where this fault goes because it runs true east and west. It should go through this glacial cliff shelter if, if it, in fact, is not just a big crack in the rock that runs a few hundred feet, but it isn't that fact. And I sent you some pictures of that, Mark, where I found where the mm -hmm. cliff is split right down the middle. And on the other side of the hill going east, and that's on the west side, on the east, um, but in the main site, I found more of the bedrock split on another side of a wall near our 3,000- and 4,000-year-old uh, excavation pits from the 1960s and 70s, just, just to the side of that, I found the, the same crack. You know, I'm like, now if we can map that with a radar and then use the LIDAR and then put them together, we should have a very good, you know, um, visual on this, this fault line. And the ancient people took advantage of that. They actually quarried some of the roof slabs, the biggest one being 14 tons, part of a chamber called mm -hmm. the double solar two-story building, the only two-story building remaining at the site. And they actually took advantage of that crack that became one side of the, of the stone 
the other three sides do indicate where they had to dress the stone using percussion flaking. So there's a little bit of shaping, but on that edge, it's perfectly straight. They were happy with that. And they did extract some stones from there. So, you know, one side being a little higher than the other, some of that's been actually altered by man a little bit. So we're going to have that question answered when we get out to an area where it wasn't touched by man. As the earth actually shifted both vertically, and it also has moved horizontally. We can actually see a joint or what they call a dike of rock going through it. And actually it's moved one way where it's split, and the other part of the dike on the other side of the crack has moved slightly the other way. And you can see it. I've got photographs of that, too. So horizontally, it's moved. And vertically, it looks like it has, too. But we'll, we'll be able to, um, with a ground penetration radar, I think, be able to definitely um, answer that question. You know, did it also move vertically up and down, too? It does appear to be, though. And that's what you saw in his LIDAR. So that LIDAR is pretty good. It gets rid of trees. You can see what the hill looks like. All of a sudden, the serpent walls, are, and that's on the 15 acres. I've seen a couple little images, kind of teases he sent me. And some of those serpent walls look pretty magnificent on, you know, it's like, wow, it looks like a snake, you know, with the LIDAR, you know, because the trees and some of the vegetation still a little bit in the way of these. And they pop out like a sore thumb when you look at them. It's like, holy cow, you know, no mistake. And that looks like a snake, you know. <clears throat> Heather, since you've been uh, to uh, America's Stonehenge, what, what are the impressions you got from – uh, uh, this sacred site. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, one of the things that um, I've been doing a lot of research on for years now are the stone chambers here in New York, um, uh, over 500 of them in New York alone and, of course, scattered throughout New England. And I found a lot of the same um, architectural design, um of the chambers uh, with the lintel stone above the entrance, mm -hmm. um, the way the some of the ceilings or corbels, um, the alignment of these um, chambers with uh, and and walls too. We have so many walls in New York that are just completely fascinating um, and clearly, in my opinion, don't even function as walls. It's something more esoteric, but um, the the construction, the alignment with um, cosmic events, solar events. Also, what Dennis has mentioned, we find here too in New York, particularly with the balanced stone, which is a huge dolmen, about 60 ton mega, mega stone um, perched apart uh, on top of pieces of quartz, small chunks of quartz, um, that it's aligned with fault lines. And the ancient people really... Um, you knew how to manipulate the energies coming from fault lines. And not just uh, in the chambers here in New York and in America's Stonehenge, but also uh, the Hohokam uh, native population of Arizona also did mm -hmm. their petroglyph drawings related to fault lines. So this, um, this kind of, um, I wouldn't say obsession, but definitely a, a major component of their construction aside from the actual stonework and the alignments are their positioning next to um, adjacent to on top of fault lines and I think you know there could be numerous years of study just based on that because it's a global phenomenon not just seen um, here in North America but seen elsewhere too so that that was a 
first impression with the um, similarities between other sites I had seen in New York, in Connecticut, in Massachusetts, in New Hampshire, of course, Vermont. Um, there's also a, a connection. But you also see there are delineations between the stonework. Um, even here in New York, we'll see a chamber and say, oh, that one looks older than the one over here. And um, and you do see that. You see a different variations in the architecture through either different groups of people, different epochs of time. And I did see a lot of similarities between the, the uh, chambers and the walls where Dennis has, particularly also the serpent walls, which we have a lot of here in New York, and, and, and the construction here. So it, um, it really makes you think uh, on a grander scale, just not uh, supposing that this construction was happening in New York and then it was happening in New Hampshire. No, I think it was contemporaneous in some cases with each other, and it was a, a massive event to make these chambers um, uh, construct these chambers, and, and the, you know, obviously the purpose is still unknown. And um, there was tremendous similarities between the positioning with cosmic events, such as you know even um, uh, equinoxes, um, you know the solstices, uh, um, star alignments, Venus, the moon, supermoons, and we see that here with chambers in New York. So it's very interesting, it, the, the coordination between the sites. Yeah, and uh, Mark D'Antonio uh, told, uh, told us about the 1054 supernova, too, that was uh, recorded in petroglyphs as well. Mm. Yes. Even in Chaco Canyon, actually. That's one hike I'm dying mm -hmm. to do. It's about a, a seven-mile mm -hmm. hike, but very, very strenuous, no shade, and um, you have to really <laughs> be careful when you do it. I think, Dennis, you might have done that hike. Did you see that? Well, um, we did a couple of hikes. Yeah, it was pretty warm when we were there. We didn't do the seven-mile hike. <laughs> I'm going to leave that for you. Maybe I'll do it again some <laughs> other time. But we, we, did a, we did a lot of hiking there. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of hiking we did there, but not that particular loop, I guess, you know. So maybe next time, yeah. That that supernova <laughs> yeah. petroglyph though is also seen, and I just saw it last summer in a cave in Bonaire. So, wow. um, and Bonaire wow. is in the Southern Caribbean, wow. about 16 miles mm. off the coast of the South American mainland, and um, it was wow. recently determined by um, researchers that it was depicting the the supernova explosion. There's also potentially a petroglyph. Um, in Aruba, also predicting this, uh, predict, uh, documenting the same thing. So it was must have been a spectacular event. And again, it's mm -hmm. um, it's it, it's documented in these sites that are very far apart from one another geographically. And I had a, a question, and. Our good buddy Carol uh, asked asked me to ask basically the same question. I uh, jot down, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Dennis, when it's uh, some of this 
uh, LIDAR and drones and uh, photos were taken. Um, about how high is the equipment uh, flying? <clears throat> well, the um, the LIDAR actually is basically a unit that um, clips onto like a vest, I think sort of a vest belt, or I'm not sure what you would call it, mm-hmm. a harness, I guess. And um, it's just about, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to, I got pictures of Tom holding it. I think the unit is roughly about head high. And when you see the okay. image, again, the first time I saw it, I said, wait a minute. And I thought he was using handheld LIDAR. Looks like he used a drone, you know, from maybe 100 feet or so or 200 feet above the, uh, you know, I'm looking at it going like, this is handheld. It was just, it really doesn't look like it's handheld. You know, he even did our visitor center and you can see the whole top of the roof looking down at it. <laughs> but, um, so, but the drone, you know, you have to keep them under 400 feet. I mean, I mean, you can get, I guess, and we are near, not too far from an airport. We're just outside of, uh, I think it's class D airspace. So the gentleman that's been doing thermal imaging with a high definition, he was just up to, he met Tom about a month ago, but his equipment, uh, it's got the latest, he's got the latest equipment too. And it wouldn't let him start the drone uh, because the GPS in it must've said or thought it was inside of a class D airspace and it wouldn't let him start it, you know, and he has to get in when he, but it's not, it's out, it's outside the five mile class D airspace. But for some reason, something goofed up on the GPS, which is pretty typical up on our hill batteries dying and GPS, GPS mm-hmm. problems and other things, you know, it's what we're always laughing about the problems we have up there. It's like, it is a mystery hill, you know, but um, yeah, but that drone usually flies uh, just above treetop level up to about 400 feet um, when he does it. But with Tom, he's just walking around with it, you know, and it's, it's amazing. You know, you swear to God, you're up in a drone or an airplane with this equipment. So it's just about the, just about head high. Tom's about six feet tall. And again, the drone is probably, you know, uh, between maybe a hundred feet to 400 feet. And it flies kind of in a, uh, I guess as a plowman walks just back and forth, you know, it's all programmed, you know, but the other day when he was up, he, he was embarrassed. He couldn't get the thing going, you know, it just wouldn't let him do it. It like locked it out because it thought it was inside of a, you know, class D airspace, you know, and they don't want you flying in there with a the drone. So it kind of protects the airspace and it uh, prevents, you know, incursions, I guess, you know, or at least starting in there. So it's kind of cool. Um, but Heather was mentioning the energy, you know, the uh, uh, being on fault lines. And I know uh, Maria Wheatley got into that about the sites over in Europe and she does seminars and talks and she takes tours on that kind of thing over there. And in Wales going into England, there's about 700 ancient stone circles and they're located uh, either on or near. And she says it's either on or up to a half a mile, a mile and a half from the fault line <clears throat> pretty consistently right across those, those uh, stone circles. And the equal amount are up in Scotland, and I still haven't, I've been to Scotland, I haven't found out if those are also situated over a fault line. But she said, uh, yeah, there's an energy there, there's a piezoelectric effect. Sometimes when an earthquake occurs, uh, you'll get earthquake lights, you know. And the ancients must have been kind of tuned into this and Heather mentioned, I think, a supermoon. And she says sometimes when you have that in, or the planets are aligned, you'll get even more stresses, particularly along the fault lines, you know, um, just gravitational forces, you know, pulling on them. And so she really gets into it. She's very articulate and very, you know, she has a lot of information about that. And because we were doing her show uh, just last week all about this particular phenomenon, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but 
Yeah, well, Heather, I was talking about the area down in uh, the Hudson Valley um, that Heather was mentioning, and I and I brought that up on that video too. And I said I believe is you know either fault lines or there's earthquake you know activity down there, and in the northeast corner of Massachusetts, there's a lot of uh, activity. I just read a 45 page report from the Harvard uh, uh, Geophysical Department. I don't know how old the report was, but it's a long report to read. It's, wow, you know, but it's all about the fault lines uh, going uh, central Massachusetts up into the northeast and into southern New Hampshire and part of Maine. And I had a lot of information about the faults and everything and all the different fault lines and rifts and all these other, you know, terms. Sometimes I had to stop and look up the term to see what they were talking about. But uh, a lot of detail, a lot of information about it. But we're in a very very active area, and I think that on Hudson Valley, they have that going on down, down there too, I believe. I also wanted to get into uh, the Nero manuscripts that you, you recently rediscovered. Um, and I'm sure you, you know, we'll probably be including uh, some of this information in with um, you know, the theories that were co- covered in the uh, uh, you know, rough drafts. But you know, can, can you tell us a little bit about uh, how you found the, these manuscripts? Um, you know, when when were they written? Uh, who were the authors? Yeah, I'm going through my dad's uh, files. He's got he got these great big uh, Tupperware bins full of his papers. When he when he passed away a little over ten years ago, um, my son moved into his home, and then eventually they moved out of his home, and all of this was uh, brought over to the museum along with file cabinets. So some of his um, you know, reports, papers, you know, journals and everything were filed. Uh, and I remember back in the early 70s, we had one of our research members, she was from New York, and she would come up and uh, she would actually uh, uh, stay in our basement. It was finished, you know, and she would she would work on this back in 71, 72. But um, over the years, we've collected a lot more. And um, I'm finding all sorts of, you know, personal letters to different early researchers, you know, uh, really interesting people, and sometimes these people actually have been on the History Channel. They've talked about them because most of them are passed away now, but um, just different people. Um, and I happen to come across some papers from a gentleman named Andy Vertovius. And Andy was an interesting gentleman. Um, he's finished uh, descent. Uh, I think his parents came from Finland, um, and he never went to school a day in his life, but he had a photographic memory, and he read extensively. He could speak several languages, including Finnish. Um, he did have some physical uh, disabilities. He couldn't, you know, walk. He could walk, but he had some difficulties. So I think that prevent. I guess that's why he never went to school. His sister actually took care of him most of his life. He ended up working for the Sanders Company in Nashville, New Hampshire, which was bought by Lockheed, so it became the Sanders Lockheed Company. And he was a librarian in there. And uh, and um, he, uh, you know, was excellent at that. My dad would ask him about a particular quotation he could name the book and he could name the chapter and he could tell you the page number out of the clear blue sky he'd go oh bob hold on for a minute i okay that's in this book it's in you know just like that just like that was amazing my dad just he could never believe it 
He lived in New Hampshire, uh, but he was one of the original founders of the New England Antiquities Research Association, which was founded in 1964 by my dad and five other people. And today, I think the membership is, uh, you know, several hundred people are in the group today, and it's still going pretty strong. Um, but Andy wrote for different magazines like Agassiz, Fate. He, um, uh, let's see, he wrote, he was the, uh, the secretary and the editor for the Nera Journal. And he belonged to a couple other archaeological groups. He wrote for local newspapers, quite a, and he was also a U.S. weatherman. And he actually did stories about him taking the weather for 40-something years. He had his own little weather station in his yard. But for a guy that then went to school, he did very, very well. And um, he first visited our site back in 1953. But he uh, was writing a book starting around 1964. And I have kind of, I guess, the galleys of the books, uh, the different chapters that he was going to write about. And I'm still looking for... Um, whatever happened to this book, because I just don't recall the book ever being sold at our museum or ever reading the book. But it, you know, it starts um, basically back in the ice age, talks about the fusion of ancient people coming to the new world before Columbus. Uh, so it starts in the ice age, but it works its way all the way up to Columbus and the various cultures from different parts of the world that may have arrived on our shores. And I was kind of impressed by that because we're still talking about the same thing today uh, Dennis Stafford from the, uh, you know, from the Smithsonian, he was the department of, uh, anthropology and he just passed away last year and he came to some of the near meetings and spoke too. I never met him. Um, I wish I had, but he was talking about people coming across from, uh, you know, the Salutrian culture coming over sometime around 19,000 years ago, uh, from, you know, Spain, Portugal, and the area of France. And he said that the, the, uh, the Clovis points look more, I, uh, you know, Iberian than Siberian, and most of them are found on the East Coast as opposed to the West Coast. And then they looked at DNA. I'm not sure that stands today with the DNA evidence, but linguists looked at it and said, you know, there's some connection there to Europe. Um, and there's some other artifacts that seem to suggest that people are crossing the Mid-Atlantic and uh, along the ice margin going back during the last glacial maximum coming into the New World, you know, um, and, again, that's being argued. Um, I don't know what the latest on that is. But um, Andy Andy, and his thing here, he's talking about it, going along the ice margin, coming over, uh, going back, uh, not only the uh, Salutrian culture, but the one called the Magdalenians, I believe it's called. The Salutrian is from about 22,000 years ago up to about uh, roughly, I think it's eight, about 17,000 years ago. And then the uh, Magdalenians out of France from a cliff shelter with that name, um, is the ones he really talks about coming across into North America and, um, you know, on boats, I guess. Um, and then he starts working his way towards Columbus with different different people coming over, um, making the crossings. But um, with our site, he felt the site was probably um, the Phoenicians may have been involved with our site. And that's before the... Um, you know, translations by Dr. Barry Fell over 10 years before Barry Fell ever came to our site or looked at some of the Vermont inscriptions. Vermont has the most inscriptions, I think, of the whole Northeast. But it's before America, B.C., came out by Barry Fell in 1976. And when you really start reading this, it's like amazing, you know, and the same questions, the same ideas, some of the same theories that we're talking about 56 years later. And I was looking, I'm like, God, it sounds like this was written yesterday. And unfortunately, some of the things haven't been answered, you know, I was still, you know, still questioning some of the same, same um, things about our site 
in some of the other 800 or so sites across the Northeast. So it was really a surprise, and I don't know if it was made into a book, but it was 18 chapters. And when you get into each chapter, it's just amazing what he was pulling up here, you know. And, again, it's before GPR and LIDAR. It's before, um, well, before some of the, this is the, before any carbon dating was done at our site. We have 12 carbon dating starting in 1967. And there were already, uh, the theory was that the site probably dated back three to 4,000 years and um, probably a Mediterranean-Phoenician connection to it out of Spain and Portugal, the Iberian Peninsula, just like Dr. Barry Fell talks about. Um, then he talks about the mound building and the Hopewell, Adena cultures out west. And some of the things that you discussed about some of the mounds out west, he's talking about this back in 64. So it's like, you know, you think all this stuff is new today, you know, some of the discussions, but they're talking about this stuff almost 60 years ago. It, it, Heather, uh, Dennis just brought up uh, yeah, possible, uh, the these manuscripts expressing uh, um, you know, the hy- hypothesis that Phoenicians and Salutrians from deep antiquity, uh, other uh, people diffused around the planet. Some, some uh, came to New England. Uh, you know, with your extensive studies in the Caribbean, does that theory hold up there, especially with, uh, you know, the the giants? Could they have been um, making their way from uh, the Holy Land or, you know, uh, did they come from America? America and sailed to Aruba or even uh, even get get into just your observations of uh, your your research throughout the Northeast. Uh, you know what do you what are you seeing that uh, correlates or disprove some some of these uh, 1964 manuscripts? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, uh, last was it last year I was in Tucson, Arizona, and I'm up, up with Gary David. Gary David is, mm-hmm. um, has done extensive – I think he's probably been on your show too – extensive research. Yeah, just a couple in, weeks ago. Oh, he was. Okay, I have to look it up then. Um, I love hearing him talking. Yep. He wrote a, a book about um, how the major centers of the Southwest, such as Chaco, Mesa Verde, um, Canyon de Chez, align and, and several others align in such a way to mirror the image of the constellation Orion um, on the mm-hmm. Earth. Um, and we went together to the um, Arizona. Um, historical museum in downtown Tucson and he wanted to show me these artifacts called the Tucson artifacts and they're kind of I don't know if you've ever heard of them but I had never heard of them before he took me and I was my jaw hit the floor I I have photos on them and actually you know I'm going to repost that on 
on my Facebook page because it's really fascinating. And what they found, um, actually, it was a, a ranchers. Um, I believe it was in the early 40s, 50s, uh, were digging and came across um, these artifacts. And they were, um, they had Hebrew on them, written in Hebrew. And it was on this, they were found um, along the site of what was then um, part of the Indian nation of the Hohokam, which are very strange people. They completely disappeared off the face of the earth. Um, the Zuni culture, uh, the Zuni people actually of today, um, believe that they are the original descendants of the Hohokam, but um, but actually don't even um, know if that's the case, if they're a conglomeration between Navajo and Zuni. But nonetheless, um, they were discovered and they were determined to be trading posts from a, a culture that came over from, and it, said, it, ha, it tells the story in Hebrew on these metal crosses, uh, slabs, um, uh, almost, they almost, they're, they're, they're spikes essentially, but with signs on them. And one of them talks about how they came over from Britain. They came across the ocean. They went up the Mississippi, uh, what was what is now the Mississippi, obviously, and found their way to the Rio Grande and, and ended up um, in Hohokam territory and ended up trading with them for what could be a, maybe a thousand years. And they talked about some of the posts say that, um, this is their, uh, they, they negotiated with the Hohokam, and this was their area where they could um, have trade and um, tap into the natural resources and how they mm -hmm. coexisted with the native population and could not have survived had they not struck um, a, 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 a cordial and amicable relationship with the, uh, the, the Hohokam. And so this is really material evidence shown to be a, a direct connection between people coming over for, from Hebrew descent from Britain um, up our river system and landing in Tucson, right outside Tucson, Arizona, actually in, uh, very close to the Casa Grande ruins, uh, actually in that whole area. Uh, which was, would have been one of the major spots of the Hohokam um, community. So it was shocking to me because it felt like this was really material proof, documented, written in Hebrew of people who came from Europe in ancient times, made it here, and ended up settling here and being prosperous and living in a symbiotic relationship with the native uh, indigenous populations. In um, Aruba, based off of the skeletal remains of the original inhabitants of Aruba, who were giants, they had elongated skulls, they were light-skinned, light hair, their, their features were very different from, for example, the Arawak, who uh, came much later after um, the giants originally arrived 
you can say, in Aruba. It's not, uh, it's not known how they ended up in Aruba. They, um, as I said, they were a tall in stature. Um, the sh- shortest people were at least six feet tall, but they were much taller than that, at least eight feet tall. And they had elongated skulls. Um, their anatomical features are such that you could see where the, um, the neck uh, is in touch with the skull. It's positioned in such a way towards the back of the skull to accommodate the uh, weight of the, of the brain case and the brain, and et cetera. And I talk at length with the archaeologist, the head of uh, scientific research in Aruba, about where he thinks the giants came from. Because the islands of Aruba were uh, the islands of Aruba, Bonaire, and Curacao were always islands. They were never part of the mainland. So it's uh, it they is have to be naval the, engineers. Yes, yes, exactly. He, the archaeologist, said, um, told me, Raimundo Dykoff, that he felt, from his knowledge, um, that they were Egyptian which was shocking to me because here's an archaeologist. And actually, when I saw him last summer, I, I asked him if I could say uh, that, uh, put him on record as actually saying he thought they were Egyptian. And he said that I could, which was quite astounding too. And moving in the right direction, really, I think, in terms of all, of all academia, um, in, t- in terms of embracing alternative theories of what's going on, uh, what went on thousands of years ago and not making it so clear-cut because it's, it's clearly not clear-cut. So he, his belief was that he felt that they were of Egyptian origin. And um, another oh. researcher also came up with that conclusion. And that's astounding because they had to get across the ocean and then find these little specks in the sea why did they come there? There is no other evidence in the Caribbean of any giant race existing. There is um, what is considered two breakaway civilizations of the giants, one in Cuba and one in Colombia, that are believed to be part of the same race of giants who inhabited Aruba, Bonaire, and Curacao, at least 5,000 years ago, in my estimation, and even that of the archaeologists, it could have been as far as 25,000 years ago, and um, that this was the only population. So if they did come from Egypt, and why did they choose these islands? And then why did the breakaway civilizations, one in Colombia, one in Cuba, why did they go there? And um, it's quite interesting. So the people of Bonaire actually um, even have a connection to Easter Island in that they both have on both of their islands a naval stone, a stone that has believed to have given birth to the inhabitants of the island that is connected in some way to the center of the earth. And uh, in uh, Rapa Nui, in Easter Island, it's a sphere, it's a, it's perfectly round, smooth Sphere, uh, that actually is also believed to be on a fault line. And then in Bonaire, it's this monolith of stone, this t- tremendous monolith of stone with a, with a hole in the center of it, which is quite interesting. So there could be a connection even between the Polynesian people and the people of Bonaire. So, yeah, it, it seems very logical that this could be an instance where there was transoceanic travel 
going back thousands upon thousands of years, which and it might not have been as difficult then as Dennis was mentioning with regard to being in some cases an ice age, also continents closer together, um, land masses weren't as submerged. And then here with the chambers in New York, um, there was discovered a, um, a point, an arrow point that was dated to 2,000 years ago. It was found within the King's Chamber, which is in Putnam uh, County, New York. And, and that quartz that this point was uh, made of was traced back to Iceland 2,000 years ago. So the fact that there could have been either a, tra- a trade going on or um, or an Icelandic mm-hmm. presence um, in New York, is it's also totally feasible. And so you'll see in these ancient cultures that even Chaco Canyon, I got the feeling at Chaco that the people of Chaco were not, um, did, did, were maybe from connected in some ways to the South American civilization. So um, you definitely see this converging of ancient cultures in sites here um, in this hemisphere, and um, and it's it's very common to see that. And these sites were continued to be built upon, revered through millennia, uh, through the eons of time. For some reason, these same sites were maintained. I believe, such as the chambers, continued to be used. I I think you know. Um, with regard to America's Stonehenge, Dennis would agree that that was probably a site that was repeatedly used by multiple cultures over m- multiple epochs of time. And um, and the and the other question that I always have is why why those sites and and what did everyone see in them? And um, so yes, the the fact that other um, cultures have, have come and populated other parts of the earth in ancient times and created architecture or utilized and built upon architecture of prior civilizations is very feasible to me. And I think that anyone who looks at the facts in an objective manner could come up with those same conclusions. It's quite fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Dennis, Heather just uh, mentioned uh, Icelandic people coming to uh, North America, um, and it, in the manuscript, um, uh, you know, there's a unfinished uh, chapter on uh, Vikings, and you know, we know about the Launce uh, Meadows site in uh, eastern Canada uh, and, and I was doing some reading that there's uh, uh, been some evidence that there was uh, uh, like a furnace uh, discovered at the uh, Canadian site and you know we're all, uh, also talking about uh, furnaces that were mentioned in Squire and Davis's uh, ancient monuments of the Mississippi Valley. Um, did, did those did the uh, rough drafts mention go, go into more detail about uh, smelting or you know being able to pour iron? 
we lose Dennis? No. Maybe we lost Dennis. No, he's still oh, he's there? to be here. Well, he's here. He's not talking, but he's here. Oh, there you are. I, I lost you for a minute. <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay. Yeah, Mike, I, um, I heard you, but I couldn't talk. I guess something about, you know, there's Mallory's book um, that we have in our library at the museum, and I think it was written in the 1950s, and he talks about the, some of the mounds, you know, and having actually mm-hmm. uh, smelting furnaces inside of them, you know. One of his theories was it was the Greenlanders, you know, when the Little Ice Age hit. Sometime in the 1400s, uh, somewhere around 5,000 Greenlanders seemed to disappear. So some died there, of course, and some of the bodies that they found were very, uh, you know, mal- they had malnutrition. They weren't eating. The uh, the Little Ice Age was really uh, taking its toll. You know, the, the animals weren't reproducing. The crops weren't growing whatever they were growing there. And so the people were, some people were deformed, and, you know, it was just, but not everybody died there, and they didn't seem to go to Iceland. They don't seem to go back to Europe. His thought was possibly they went back into the Americas. I saw a PBS show two, about two years ago about the new Viking find up in Newfoundland at Point Rosie, I believe it's called, about 400 miles southwest of Lonzo Meadow. And it's the second Viking settlement, I believe, that's been identified. There's one in the Baffin Islands they don't talk too much about. But I think officially it's like the second oh. one, and it might have been a boat repair place. But they think that the Greenlanders were coming into the New World not for – when I grew up, I thought the Vikings came over, you know. It was like one season in the New World, and then Leif and then his brothers and half-sister came over, you know, and, and that was about it. You know, Philville, Calcephony coming over maybe. But now, and as I grew up, I heard maybe 25 years they may have been coming over from Greenland – into uh, into the Americas, you know, um, and now they think they were coming over for perhaps up to 400 years, you know, going back and forth. It's perhaps that it got so cold up there, you know, season after season, it got worse that they they left. And it was before the time of just before Columbus, you know. And um, so then he I think Alan Malin thought that maybe those <clears throat> mounds with the furnaces were something the results of the uh, Vikings or their actually their descendants. They, it was no longer the Viking era, you know. Um, when they became Christianized. So that's it was a fascinating book. His book is still referenced in many other books today. Um, and also I have a, on my phone here, I don't know if you can read it, it's about giants. And Andy Bartholius talks about giants, you know, being in North America. It's an interesting passage uh, in how they may have arrived here. It's a theory, you know. But he was talking about that back again in 1964. And... Um, Actually, as the ice melted, they may have migrated north along the ice margin. And um, the Eskimos, what we call the Inuit, I guess, but the Eskimos, what he used for the word, uh, had a name for these giants. And he called them, if I can see on my phone here, I'll check, see what it says here. <clears throat> well, and it's kind of, uh, I just lost it. But anyway, they called like the Wobbly Giants, I think. It was a name like T-O-O. And a juke, like tuna juke, I think it was called. And it's something about they were wobbly or uh, they weren't stable giants, you know. So the Eskimo had a name for them, too. And um, 
but so the so the giants do, do come up in this in this in, in a couple times here too about giant uh in your uh, area of the grave creek mound it mentions it in some of the other mounds out west too and how some of these giants were shipped off to the smithsonian and you know mysteriously misplaced you know uh, he gets into that back in 1964, so and we're still dealing with that today. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, nearly 60 years after these um, chapters were started, um, and Dennis, like you said, you know, we're still dealing with the same issues. Uh, are there some insights into uh, new directions that maybe we should have taken a long time ago in uh, prehistoric research? Hmm, yeah, like 2020, 20, you know, Monday night quarterbacking. Uh, I was thinking of that. It's a great question, Mark, because I was thinking the same thing. What could have changed in, you know, 55, you know, 60 years ago, um, what could we have done to maybe get closer to the answers? I mean, it's, you know, you just think about that, but I mean, there's a lot of problems, you know, obviously the mainstream resists this for number one, you know, they think that these things are all, at least in the Northeast are built by farmers and, you know, settlers during the 1800s and 1900s and that these sites aren't ancient and they're not really worthy of any real investigation, you know, that's part of that problem. Uh, getting funding to do different types of testing is another thing, you know. Um, we struggled to get the uh, 12 carbon datings we did at our museum, and there's probably more we could have done. But the reluctance of the archaeological, you know, establishment to send people to do the excavations, the equipment, and the funding to do that has been a big problem, you know. And then you have places like, I don't want to pick on any particular, but, you know, like National Geographic and the Smithsonian and other, you know, a lot of the universities have great archaeological departments, but they tend to focus on things overseas, not in their own backyards. You have a site like, uh, we call a site, it can be a chamber, it can be multiple chambers, like North Stonington, Connecticut. It has 8,000 features in the book that Mark and Starr wrote just four years ago called Ceremonial Stonework. was It's outstanding, really. It has these features that are just like at our site and some of the features are just like you'd see out in the Hudson Valley where, where Heather was talking about and elsewhere too, you know? Um, But that site has 8,000 features over 35,000 acres and it's in the backyard of Yale, you know, university, Brown university is just down the street and Harvard's up the road, you know, an hour and a half away. And yet they don't even know about this, this site. And it's remarkable. Um, It's not a farm. The area is not arable. It's, it's hilly, swampy, uh, rocky, um, kind of like our hilltop and a lot of these other sites. And there's no, you know, if it was all built by farmers, you'd find cellar holes from that time period, from barns, uh, carriage houses, from the houses themselves. And there's no historical record, you know. And Markham Stye, you know, he says, yeah, I've been told I lived here 30 years that the farmers built all these things. But I never thought there was. Where's all the uh, colonial or post-colonial farm, farmhouses and barns? They're not here. Plus, these just don't make any sense for a farm, you know. All these different walls that today they look like serpent walls, carns, standing stones, chambers, you know. And some of the walls go from glacial erratic boulder to another one, back and forth zigzagging. Whereas most walls built by our forefathers in the late, you know, starting in the 1700s, going up to you know more modern times, 
they were pretty linear walls. They make sense. Their boundaries, fuel clearings, and stock fences are all three. And uh, they usually kind of enclose kind of a rectangular area of fuel for the most part with some exceptions. And these walls don't mm-hmm. do any of that. They make no sense for a farm. So that's a great question. I mean, uh, it would be a great thing to kind of discuss and throw around what could have been done differently in the last 55 years or 60 years to maybe, you know, have more answers today, maybe have found the truth about these sites. But part of it's just a reluctance and a part of mainstream scholars, historians, archaeologists, a lot of them just, you know, and by their, you know, by their the dogmatic attitude, some of these sites are disappearing too. Because, you know, somebody might say, hey, to an archaeologist, what is a stone structure? Well, it's just some colonial thing. It's not really important. And the next thing, it's being cleared for a house or for a road. Or, and one of the, a lot of the highways went in the 19, uh, late 50s and early 60s in New England, like around Boston, there's one called Route 495. It's part of 95 that goes from Maine to Florida. But it's an auto belt. And my dad's got pictures and diagrams and a report on some of the chambers. I think there were beehive chambers that are completely gone today. I believe today, maybe, hopefully it's changed enough that maybe they would build around these and kind of take care of them. Um, But my dad's group and the group before that called the Early Sites Foundation, which was formed in 1954 and ran up to 1964. And when it it, uh, was dissolved, that's when NERA kind of took over. Uh, they recorded some of these sites, you know, that are no longer there, and that's true across the landscape, you know. And so, you know, one of our things, like Heather and I have talked about, is the care and protection of these sites, uh, the preservation of these sites, and hopefully education of people, too, you know, make the public aware that, you know, these things these things are um, part of our ancient past, you know, that they're precious and they should be taken care of, you know, wherever we can do that, you know because there's progress going on, obviously, you know, with development and everything. But sometimes uh, the builders can actually build around them. They can actually, uh, the Danville Chamber, I think Heather went to that. That was given by one of the big builders in the area, and I've met him. He passed away a few years ago, and I was talking to him at his farm. We were getting some alpaca hay from him, and I was talking about our site a little bit. And he has a country club up in uh, the next hill over that Heather loves to stay at. It's his family, you know. And uh he was nice. He actually donated the piece of land uh, to the uh, Danville, New Hampshire, and it's right next to the highway department. And it's kind of one of the town historic sites. And they got a brass, I guess, uh, plate. Uh, it's a uh, dedication on it to, you know, it says it's a beehive chamber, even though it's really not a beehive chamber. It's not really core belt. It's vertical stacking. But it's a beautiful little stone chamber. It sits on the side of a hill, and it's next to the highway department. And uh, the town seems to be caring for it because we have to be worried about vandalism, you know. So some of the locations of these structures are kept quiet and for a good reason, you know. And others that can be protected, you know, um, you know, they're on the historic trail of the town and somebody keeps an eye on it, you know, because this is right next to one of the town facilities. So I think the guys kind of keep an eye on the thing. But, um, you know, so that, that gentleman gave it to the town. And there's another place like that in Raymond where – our first re- researcher back 80 years ago, William Goodwin of Hartford, Connecticut, he bought our property and he began work on it in 1937. But he worked on about 14 other sites uh, in, in this area of Massachusetts, Connecticut, and in um, New Hampshire. And the Raymond site in New Hampshire he uh, actually worked on, I understand that was given by the landowner to the town, too, to uh, protect, you know, um, so nobody will bulldoze, bulldoze it down in the future, you know. So um, 
maybe slowly but surely some of that's happening up here. Yeah, uh, Heather, what <clears throat> Dennis was just talking about the uh, some vandalism, some of the uh, means of um, you know, towns preserving, say some of the uh, beehive-looking uh, chambers. It, uh, what are you seeing since you're out and about um, on a regular basis th- throughout uh, New York and New England? Um, are you seeing some vandalism? I, you know, we could, you know, there's a recent report of um, the spray painting of Plymouth Rock. You know, are you seeing? Uh, Vandalism on on your trips, or is there a little bit more uh, effort to preserve these uh, prehistoric and uh, somewhat re- uh, recent or post-contact uh, archaeological sites? You know, it's a shame because um, you know these sites are not fully, quote-unquote, recognized by academia, mm-hmm. um, they aren't afforded protection. If they're dismissed um, as, you know, root sellers, uh, why would an archaeologist ever begin digging there? Why would a town um, a historical society ever think to preserve the site? You do see some cases of that occurring, but there's so few, and you could probably count them on two hands of, of sites that are actually protected. One that comes to mind is Gungiwamp in Connecticut, um, which is actually a protected site. Um, but most of the chambers in New York State are not protected. And we have a little group of us who go around and and continually monitor these chamber sites. And the biggest problem is uh, graffiti. And the graffiti, usually we have a team of people who can, uh, who know people who have special chemicals and power washing techniques that who can get rid of this paint that's on, on the chambers, in the chambers. And but recently, a Mount Ninnum in uh, right by by Kent, New York, in Putnam County, um, there's there's spray paint all in the front of this chamber that is along a busy hiking path. So it's in plain sight, and this paint no one can get off. So we don't even know what they used to make these markings. So these permanent scarrings are, uh, which are just. Uh, I mean, it's just devastating. Are are on the face of this of this chamber? I've um, found, you know, part of part of what we do is we go around, we look at the chambers, we make sure everything's intact. If there's graffiti, people try to address it. Um, this is just people like such as myself just get, getting together with a group and and saying let's do this because no one else is doing it. Um, we have found chambers where people were living in there. Um, definitely chambers where people were partying with beer bottles. 
There are chambers that um, have become like almost garbage dumps, and we we continually go and clean them out and clean them of leaves and and make sure they're respected and maintained. Fortunately, um, as Dennis had mentioned earlier, a lot of times these sites, if you find them, if you stumble across them, there are balanced rocks, there are meniers, um, all different types of stone structures in New York, not just the chambers. Oftentimes they are protected simply because of where they're located. Many of the sites that we go to are off trail. You have to have someone with you who knows where they're going. Um, even some of the Karen sites I've been to up in the um, uh, in by Woodstock, New York, with Bruce Edwards. Uh, I mean, they're so the the, tra- the the hike just to get to them is just so crazy. Um, and, and then again, you wonder why is this chamber at the top of this hill in the middle of nowhere after a strenuous hike that, um, in some cases, dangerous. So that that location actually will help protect them, and that's good. And that's why when you if you look on the people always say to me, "Where are the chambers? Can you give me directions to the chambers? I want to check out the chambers." And I'll say with quite honesty, I mean, there's no way I could even describe unless you're familiar with the area. I couldn't even begin to explain to you how to get to the the chamber. It's just there are no directions and. Some you just park on the side of the road and just hike in, and all of a sudden, for example, the one chamber like that that comes to mind is the King's Chamber, which is one of the largest chambers, if not the largest chamber in New York. Um, it's just you know you're just parking on the side of the road, hiking into a forest, and the next thing you know, you find the King's Chamber, which actually in and of itself has uh, also suffered vandalism. There was a standing stone outside the entrance of the King Chamber, King's Chamber. That is, you know, very heavy and continually knocked down. Um, people try to put it back up, but it's so heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know um, my my one uh, colleague. She, she said, "Come on, let's bring this back up." I mean, we couldn't even budge the thing. So, um, so you do see vandalism at these sites, and it's and it's sad because this is part of our human story. This isn't just a local. Um, phenomena or um, something that should be taken care of by the community, which of course it should as well, but it shouldn't just be taken care of for the local um, population. It should be taken care of to preserve it for all of humanity so that hundreds of years from now people can go to these chambers and and (laughs) enjoy them and research them. So it's it's a problem that an extensive... um, acknowledgement and, and uh, academic acknowledgement of these sites is not occurring and has not occurred um, ever in most of the sites because that puts them at tremendous risk. And so you have to have people such as myself going and monitoring the, 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 the destruction that inevitably occurs at pretty much any chamber that's in a, a view or off of a hiking trail is definitely been vandalized several times um there's one chamber right off the main road that i went in um last year and the inside was just covered with spray paint yellow graffiti and it was just you know you just want to start crying i mean it's just almost so sad and it couldn't that again they couldn't remove that so um 
is someone, and I don't know who it was in my group, but painted over it in like a gray paint to try to make it blend with the rest of the stones. But it shouldn't have to be that way. And uh, I, I think because they're just, these sites are relegated to being root cellars in the case of the chambers in New York, um, they're, you're never going to, they're not going to be taken seriously and they're certainly not going to be researched and they're not going to be taken seriously by the general population either if they're not taken seriously by, you know, academia. So it's a shame and it's a continual struggle and I, and, and it's a global phenomenon that vandaliz- vandalization of these, uh, vandalism of these sites um, all across the globe. I, I mean, I see it in Aruba. I've seen it out in Arizona. Um, you've had an Easter Island, someone ran into a Moai and toppled a Moai. So it's a global problem that really um, it, it needs to be addressed because in a, in a couple of years, maybe even 50 years, the, some of these sites may not be in existence. There have been chambers that were destroyed to build roads here in New York, just as Dennis was saying, um, up in New England. And there have been, even when you're doing hikes to certain spots, um, I'm thinking of one site in uh, Putnam County where there's uh, Hawk Rock, which is this huge monolith of stone of several tons carved into a hawk that faces the vernal uh, equinox sunrise. You'll see how even the early colonial farmers dis, uh, dismantled the chambers, and you'll see the lintel stones in the walls. So they would make walls around their farm and and where they got the stones, the smaller ones, of course, because some of these stones are massive, megaton stones. But the smaller stones, they used within walls, perimeter walls, uh, for their for their farmstead. So um, they would just break down the chambers. You also see it in Gunjiwamp before it was protected um, in Connecticut. You saw you see walls of of that were part of a little homestead uh, that are filled with stones from from chambers that were dismantled it's uh it's a very common sadly occurrence and it's been going on a long time and and quite frankly it's one of the main reasons why i wish these sites were recognized not just for the for the uh exponential knowledge we would gain through excavation um of these sites if money were actually in time were actually dedicated to it but merely for the preservation and to me it's you know, I thought by the time my daughter was this age, because I've been going to the chambers now, I think maybe 10 years, I thought, oh, I would tell my daughter, when you get older, there's probably going to be a velvet rope and you won't be able to go in the chambers. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and, and this grandiose idea of how life was going to work out. And it would be <laughs> something that you would just stare into and you could tell, I told my daughter, you could tell your kids, remember when we used to be able to go in the chamber? And uh, nothing's happened. <laughs> and and I, mm. quite frankly, I don't know, mm. you know, um, if anything will mm. in my lifetime happen with the preservation of these sites. Dennis, Heather brought up a excellent point about that this vandalism is a global problem. Um, or just you know the other. Uh, within the last few days, there there was um, the vandalism at the Caerleon Roman Amphitheater in southern Wales. Okay, just you know, 
uh, Heather mentioned East the Easter Islands uh, truck attack on uh, one of the Moai. You know, uh, you know, there's just a couple samples of mm-hmm. uh, th- th- this vandalism going on around the world. Um, you know, you've been uh, having to deal with you know situations to uh, is there like a profile of the perpetrators that it is emerging and like a, with a lot of um in the more serious uh type or profiles of the more serious type of criminals you get um a lot of fantasy um, you know you know they really can't the perpetrators really couldn't uh, cut it as being a police officer uh, and you know, they after they do their crimes you know they go hang out with the police officers and ask uh, questions you guys have any leads on this uh, you know the Jones case. Yeah, you know, and yeah, you know, they just really can't separate their deeds from the fantasy that um, you know, it seems like it's controlling their lives. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, there's also you know, it's also called uh, wrong page. You know, with um, you know the profiling that goes on with <clears throat> uh, so, some of the um, uh, murder cases, um, John Douglas and Mark Olshaker, you know, do discuss you know the homicidal triad. Uh, that is a very common trait that's you know, the cruelty to animals, bedwetting, and fire starting. Hmm. Um, is there does there seem to be a pattern with someone who really directs so much uh, emotion towards you know, just say a stone chamber, Plymouth Rock? Um, you know, you know, you know, could could be, uh, you know, say Native Americans didn't, you know, really like the Plymouth Rock. Um, someone who had, uh, or you know, what Plymouth Rock represented. And it could, could be someone who really didn't like, uh, say, the Church of England uh, for you know, the pilgrims being associated with um, the Church of England and, you know, bringing, you know, the, uh, that philosophy here. I, you know, there, there's a number of ways to look at uh, these sites. You know, uh, do, do they want it? Mm-hmm. Make 
uh, you know, these pagan sites Christian or is there like a white supremacy uh, thought behind uh, some of these desecrations? What you know, what are you hmm. observing? Well, I think some of it's the juvenile, you know, like when they when you go along a highway and you see the uh, sound, you know, barriers, you know, all painted with you know, mm-hmm. different types of uh, graffiti. Uh, sometimes it's right. gang members putting their, you know, their logo up there. Um, and and so that's kind of like kids doing bad things, you know, and some of the spray paint stuff, you know, at those chambers that Heather mentioned, maybe that's the kind of you know, vandalism it is, kids going out with spray cans, causing, you know, putting graffiti in their mock on this chamber, you know. Um, But um, I do know, like, Avebury in England, I was reading where they had, because they were considered pagan, these these ancient sites, there was a period of time, and I forget it on the top of my head, I can't remember the dates, when this was occurring, probably in the 1600s, possibly, possibly, you know, 1700s, it was every 25 years, I believe, um, people would go out to like Avebury, for instance, and I think there were other sites that were attacked too, and they would basically take one of the large, you know, they're basically men here. So they were monoliths, but they're really big monoliths, and in that case, they're referred to as a long stone, and the word is uh, men here, and they would actually topple these things down, I think, into a fire pit, and I've been to Avebury, they call it Avebury Hinge now, and Maria Wheatley is really well-versed on that, you know. But I've been there several times, and they would actually topple these stones over. And it was a tradition. I think it was 25 years, I think. So this is the year. This is the big year we're going to go, and we're going to topple one of these heathen pagan stones over. And then they would, you know, fell it into a fire and heat it up. And then they, would, I think, would pour water. And I've heard vinegar, too, and it would cause thermal stressing in the stone and if you strike it with a maul you can start to break the stone up and uh, so this is kind of a uh, tradition that was going over and that's probably religious and it was attack against the pagan worship um, and so trying to profile these vandals who do this probably it's juvenile sometimes it's you know religious and symbolic <clears throat> you know our site was attacked too last year and we still haven't had an arrest and um, but um, you know, we're still we're still investigating it, so we can't say too much. But in this case, I don't believe it was a, a kid. We're pretty sure it wasn't a kid. So that was a different type of person, you know. And it might have been something that was wrong in their life, and they decided to come up here and uh, cause damage to this, you know, harmless stone part of, an we think, an ancient ceremonial site and take whatever frustration they had out on this stone and make it sort of a symbolic thing, you know. Um, And uh, I talked to Andrew Collin recently, too. You know, he's from England and pretty well known. And it was – I talked to him recently, but back after the vandalism, he was aware of it, and I talked to him, and he, you know, sent his – his feelings and sympathy and sadness that this happened. And he's, I believe he said Glastonbury recently, somebody went into Glastonbury and I've been there too. And they caused some damage to that site, some heavy damage. And he, he told me what it was. I can't remember the details. And it was somebody oh, that, was that was the angry. Tree? That was the, the tree. The uh, tree was attacked. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for that. That's right. Was it, 
Yeah, it was a tree that I think it was a very old tree, and then he cut it, I think, or he poisoned it. I forget that um, he caused damage I, I, to I, it. He, uh, yeah. Legend legend says that that was uh, Joseph of Arimathea's walking stick, and he you know, stuck it in the ground. That's why it blooms like around Christmas and Easter time and someone uh, took an axe to the tree. Yeah, and I think the person, they know who it was, and I think that person was upset about, he wanted to, did he want to plant crops there or did he want access for his animals to go there? And the guy must have been a hot, this person must have been a hothead, you know. But because he said, no, you can't do that, whatever he wanted to do, if I recall this, I hope I don't have the story wrong, but this is what he did, you know, or the person did. Maybe I shouldn't say he, but I think they caught him anyway and caused damage to that. So there's another, you know, you know type of person doing vandalism, you know. Oh, go ahead, Ethan, I'm just, sorry. Yeah, I just wanted to be about the types of people because that's a great point um, that we're discussing because – you know, there are so many different motivations behind this. Some mm, of them, are, yeah. Dennis is correct, they're juvenile, so they're bored, they have nothing to do. Mm. You know, then you look at South Mountain, um, you know, going back to the paganism. Um, in South Mountain, Arizona, I hike there often with Jeff Woolwine, who's an expert on South Mountain and the Hohokam culture. And he would show me, in 1933, the CCC, which um, it was created by FDR, it was a civilian conservation corps, and mm-hmm. this would, they were 100% men. They were men. It was basically to give people jobs after the Great Depression and to employ people, mm-hmm. and they lived on camps, and their part of their job was to preserve these sites. They worked with the national parks and local con- county parks, et cetera, and one of their roles was to build hiking trails, camping grounds, a lot of the trails that we've hiked on in this country have been created by the CCC and they had um, a tremendously positive influence Mm. on a lot of Mm -hmm. places. But one place where it's very sad what happened is in South Mountain. When the CCC went in there, um, part of their role was to make this place, um, uh, uh, South Mountain, a place where people can come and camp and and um, it was going to generate revenue if people were going to go there and have these camping trips and hiking excursions. And these it's lined. I mean, everywhere you look in South Mountain, it's lined with petroglyphs. And, uh, you know, beautiful petroglyphs, um, some of them quite difficult to even access. But on the ones that are meandering along this hiking trail, um, you can see they've been blasted off the side of stones and they've hmm. been completely decimated. So Jeff Woolwine went and to the um, archives and actually discovered some of the etchings and drawings of people who in the early 1800s had seen these all these petroglyph panels that are now completely destroyed. And the motivation behind the destruction was that the... Um, the the government, the local government, wanted to bring in church groups to stay at South Mountain and generate, obviously, income. But because of the petroglyphs, the church groups felt that the there were it was a pay it was pagan, that this was from work of the devil, and they wouldn't even go to South Mountain. 
So some of the more obvious petroglyphs and those that actually depict strange things such as uh, uh, amorphous figures with horns and all these other strange, um, you know, strange petroglyphs um, were, would, would have prevented them from camping there. It would have scared them. It would have made them think that they were doing, going against the word of God so that they destroyed them in order to uh, um, uh, make it easier for them to camp there, which they did. And you can see where they would put the dynamite in and blasted the whole panel of petroglyphs. And then in Signal Hill in Saguaro National Park, you have the other form of, of vandalism that's uh, very nefarious. Um, it's an amazing site with, again, so many petroglyphs, some, some very famous petroglyphs as well, sun dials um, that mark the solstices, etc. You will again uh-huh. see petroglyph panels, but more, more surgically removed from these rocks. And the reason why is that they're sold on the black market. So sometimes, in some cases, it's religion, and in other cases, it's to make money. Um, as a matter of fact, in, uh, in Aruba, um, after, shortly after World War II, a gentleman came with a boat to the island and, and came to, uh, docked at the south shore of the island and recruited some of the local children to help him um, do some digging. And he wasn't specific about what he was looking for, and he told the children he would pay them, so they were very excited. And they went into the caves. And the caves um, at this one specific spot of Boca Grande is where the archaic uh, civilization basically made their home, and the archaic people were the giants. This man said he was Dutch, but it turns out he was actually German. And a, a, a woman who was a little girl at the time writes in her journal, which I found this journal, that she remembers seeing the man and the little boys pushing wheelbarrows filled to the top with bones. And he was basically stealing all the giant skeletal remains and putting them in his wheelbarrow and, and putting having them loaded onto his boat and no one ever saw this guy again. And then it was found out that he wasn't Dutch. He was German. And um, probably to sell, maybe also they sometimes, particularly with giant skulls, especially those found in the mounds, um, they go to uh, be part of secret societies, um, part of their rituals, such as the skull and bones, the Rosicrucians, for example, maybe even the Freemasons. So there's also that type of that that reason for vandalism too so um then there's just like complete idiots you know like the mm-hmm. boy scout leaders in 2014 who toppled the pedestal stone in utah's goblin state park that was that have been there for three million years you know just complete um irresponsible humans on this earth and then um, at Chaco canyon i even uh you know there's there's believe it or not one of the most remote national parks in this country um at pueblo bonito there are several six finger and six toe handprints uh in the walls of the many rooms of the of the structures and it's one it's the largest structure in in chaco canyon and i had developed a relationship with the head uh, park ranger at chaco just simply because i had gone there often and 
I've been there often and then would contact him after and asking him questions about certain things that I had seen and researched. And I asked him when I last went to Chaco, what, can you tell me exactly where on Pueblo Bonito are the six finger handprints and, and, and toe uh, footprints and uh, six toed footprints? And she said, you know, so many people came here and tried to get to carve it out of the sides of the walls um, that we had to put cement over the, the petroglyphs, which I almost, my jaw hit the floor. I couldn't believe it. Um, and, and that's the problem with Chaco. It's so fragile. If you go there, mm. you'll see braces holding up some of these walls. <laughs> it's just such a fragile environment. And they were afraid, the rangers, that with this constant pecking to try to get this petroglyph panel off of the side of the, the, the wall, that they would knock over the whole thing. So they just put cement over the whole, all of those petroglyphs. And, um, you know, and who knows what, that, what the motivation for that. I mean, you have to be fully motivated to drive into Chaco, which is an adventure within itself. <laughs> and, and then go to this place and, and try to get these panels off of there. And then to know that now they're covered over permanently, um, that, you know, <laughs> thankfully there are some pictures of them. But there's so many strange, you know, um, motivations, you know, like, the, and it goes back, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, think about the Library of Alexandria in Egypt was destroyed in, in um, 272 AD. The Mayan codices in the 16th century destroyed by Spanish priests. Oh. Also, it happened to the Inca. And look in Afghanistan, the Buddhas of Bamiyan um, from, constructed in 507 AD were destroyed by the Taliban in 2001. So it could be you know religion, it could be financial gain, and it could be just very, um, you know, a, a, you know, juvenile people and, and people who uh, have virtually no self-control. So, um, yeah, the, the, you bring up a lot of good points about what would be the motivation. I was thinking a lot about that. I've always thought a lot about that as I see these sites vandalized, sadly, more than I ever want to. And, for example, the Moai in Easter Island, I heard, now this is, you know, completely not collaborated in any way, corroborated in any way, rather, um, that the reason why this man in Easter Island ran his truck into the Moai, and I know exactly where this Moai is too, and it toppled was because hmm. he was sick of all the tourists coming to the island um, and, hmm. and wanted to put a stop to tourism. So, you know, the motivations, uh, yeah, could just be in their heads. You know, like that's the perfect example. And, and he thinks he's hmm. saving the island by doing this by and, and maybe he's right i don't know but economically it would be a big disaster to end tourism on easter island but you know there, there are many motivations and i think you know going back you know back to for example the library of alexandria and also it's destroying knowledge it's the destruction mm. of our past which can which through that our past can we can gain knowledge and the destruction of our past is you know, that can never be replaced is, is just, uh, I think, the ultimate in in motivations for vandalism. Even in Carthage, you know, Carthage was leveled, you know, by the Romans. And they, right. uh, they had, uh, you know, they had their own library that was probably just, you know, totally destroyed, too. But uh, when I was in Mesa Verde, I did see a couple of um, prints in the uh, ranger 
pointed out, you know, six, I think six fingers on a couple of them. I took pictures of those. So those hopefully won't be, you know, damaged. But, you know, when I was at Chaco, I remember you telling me about the uh, the prints that are covered with, with concrete. And I guess that's why I didn't see them, you know. That would have been, I would have loved to have seen that, you know. Uh, what a shame. Yeah. And there are some six-toed footprints and one <clears throat> obscure petroglyph panel in Chaco that are mm-hmm. relatively high up. And I think that's what protects them. They're relatively high up on the mesa. Um, and you really mm. have to look for them because they're they're not easy and they're not in the guidebook. The guidebook no. has you going around a certain trail, which, you know, the best things in life are off trail. Everyone knows that. So if you go off trail, mm. then you find like all these sites. And that's also interesting, you know, why is the guidebook and the trail taking you away from those those prints? You know, it could also be, mm. again, covering up knowledge not wanting to disclose <clears throat> everything, especially things that can't be explained away. Right. Yeah, Heather, you, you know, discussed um, the motivation of the uh, driver that uh, wrecked his truck into a Moai. Uh, yeah, you, know, you can understand his point of view. I, I don't know, it's, uh, I've never been to Easter Island. Sure, it'd be, be a place I'd want to uh, visit. Uh, I don't know, or if there are—is is there a town there? Like, are there some like Easter Island residents? Oh yeah, no, they I mean they're they're, oh. they're still tribal in Easter Island. I mean, there are tribes. Oh, there okay. are Okay. Yeah, there the tribes will maintain certain parts of the island and for example, if there are Moai, you know, there were some Moai that I wanted to see, but I I traveled with an archaeologist from Easter Island. He he was born and raised, he's Rapa Nui, and he said, you know, no, that's, you know, that's private land and or I said, I want to see these Moai. I said, no, no, these two tribes are fighting over land <laughs> right now, so you can't go in that area, you know. And um, and there is a small, you know, um, uh, little, t- I mean, town. It's, you know, it, it is really, like, as tropical and remote and primitive as you can ever imagine, you know, little, tiny, almost like shacks set up and, uh, outdoor restaurants, maybe there's like two or three, and there's not the town is just what what would be um, a block, uh, maybe a, a Manhattan city block, you know, not not very big, just little narrow street, and um, yeah, so you know that's what's so so interesting about why this man, if that was his, indeed his motivation, because tourism is their number one. Uh, that that's their in, that is their mm-hmm. industry. As a matter of fact, um, one day we, we were supposed to take a boat ride, and um, they the Easter Island is controlled by Chile, and the Chilean mm-hmm. government closed the ports of Rapa Nui and the Easter Island, so you could see there were freighters which that had lumber and food and water that couldn't come into port. And I remember going to a little tiny shop, a little island shop, and getting a bottle of water, and and the cashier said, oh, you better get more because those boats out there have all the water we need, and we're not going to have any water until Chile opens our 
our port again. I thought, and you can't drink the water there. So I thought, oh my gosh, this is crazy. So it's it's very dependent on tourism. And but yes, there are you know it's a tribal um, uh, the way the society is organized, the native population. It's it's tribal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I, I'm. I I can understand where he's coming from, but I I think people who would go that far out of their way for a vacation are there to appreciate what makes that area so unique but you know you can also you know extend that to um like all all the stone chambers uh that you know you visit uh you know it's on Barbara's secrets of the stones video Dennis's place you know people go there to have more of an understanding of a different time period I just come, right. come away with. I I, exactly. I I just don't get the idea. Uh, don't share in the motivation to destroy another cult culture. Uh, yeah, it, it's it, it, something so alien to me. Is it being overrun by tourists, uh, Heather? I mean, is it really well, crowded no, there, and or? No, you know, and that's the amazing Machu thing. Machu Picchu so you, is, I think. It's regulated how many people can come into um, Easter yeah. Island and how many people have to leave. So every day that same plane goes back and forth. So we leave from Santiago. Mm-hmm. Um, there's mm. 200 of us on the plane. Only 200 can come in. So it's a brilliant mm. way to, again, yeah. Easter Island has yeah. gone, gone out of its way to help preserve its sites. Most of the island is um, an archaeological, active archaeological um, site and preserved through um, being a national park. So when you Mm. take that plane in from Santiago and you land and 200 of you get off, 200 people go back on that plane and they go back to the mainland. And then you can't leave the airport until you buy a pass to be able to travel to the Moai, and it's a path basically to go into the national park. Because aside from where, for example, I rented a house um, where my house was or um, where that little town is, uh, most of the island has been protected and is our, uh, is an, our active archaeological sites and considered the national park. So here's a place that has gone out of their way to protect um, their their site and their heritage, and then you have a local who goes and and, and attacks their own heritage. Mm. It's um, you know that's something you see too. We see it in Aruba. Um, when I go to Aruba, I work with the archaeologists and try to see with these petroglyph and pictograph sites that they are maintained and nothing has happened to them. And I'll go to one of the most difficult. Literally, it took me. Seven years to get into this one cave. It was so difficult to get into, and and people fall, and then there's killer beehives, and it's just literally out of Indiana Jones. And I finally got up there, all the stars aligned, and there was spray paint around the petroglyphs. I thought, oh my god! Oh no! I I mean, you just you you can't even believe it. And and these were locals. 
I mean, no one would know about this cave site. Like, mm-hmm. so, you know, no, mm-hmm. not anyone on, uh, on the planet except, of course, the locals. And these are locals who went into these caves and then drew uh, with red spray paint as if making other petroglyphs, but with red spray mm-hmm. paint that's still there, actually. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, when you have the local population um, working against you as well, it's, I mean, how do you even begin as an outsider and say, you know, protect the sites when the local population um, is not participating in that. It's very, it's frustrating. Mm. Mm. Okay. Hey, um, Heather and Dennis, we have now approaching 10 minutes left. And, you know, I did want to give both of you time to, uh, plug websites and ask Heather when her Giants book is coming out and anything else you want to cover. You have the summer solstice sunrise service coming up in a month. Yeah, I don't know if Heather wants to go first. Uh, you know. Oh, you can go, Dan. Oh, okay. Oh, oh. <laughs> well, yeah, we got a website. Uh, okay, StonehengeUSA.com, and uh, on that uh, we have uh, the 11-minute uh, video we have in the theater, which is closed now because of the the coronavirus. Um, and also, we have a uh, free app download. They can do a complete virtual tour of our site. It has text, pictures, and it talks to you. And then uh, email address, phone number. If anybody wants to reach us, we try to answer the you know everybody's uh, question if we can. And um, we have the summer solstice coming up. We may have a ceremony or we may not. depends on what's going on um, as far as the uh, C-19 thing going on. Um, but the lady's been doing it for about 27 years, and it's on a Saturday this year. Um, it's the 20th of June, and I believe there's going to be uh, an eclipse, I think, around that time, too. i got to check that. That should be wow. kind of interesting because <clears throat> we may in the future, maybe later this year, do stargazing. Uh, as we're having that forestry project continue at our site, uh, opening up the hill a little bit more. And we may talk about the different constellations and the alignments and, you know, the serpentine walls and how they may relate to the different, you know, like like Draco the serpent. Um, we have a drumming circle coming up in August, and I'll have a book. Um, it got delayed a little bit because uh, my my daughter-in-law um, is uh, actually on unemployment right now, and she was doing the typing at the museum, so it got delayed a little bit, and I'm going to add more things from all the files my dad's uh, collection has. A lot of very interesting things I'll add to the book now. So my book's going to get delayed probably maybe midsummer or maybe late summer now, depending how things go. And uh, so, yeah, so it's StonehengeUSA.com if anybody wants to get a hold of us. Um, and then uh, and that's about it, I think. <laughs> okay. Heather, how, how how can people contact uh, you? Find out what you're up to when you're. You know, how, how's your book coming along? So, you know, ever since this virus, I've been homeschooling my daughter, which has been quite a feat. And now, hearing that it might go into the fall, it's just uh, really um, almost overwhelming. So sadly, I was going great with writing, and then all of a sudden everything um, fell out from underneath. And one of the components I was going to be researching in Aruba um, this June, I, w- I should have been, I, I'm supposed to, well, in theory, I was supposed to be leaving in three weeks, um, was to do GPS coordinates of all the balance, the st- 
stones that Aruba has. Aruba has massive multi-ton stones positioned on rocks facing in various directions towards other ancient sites, etc. And um, working with the archaeologists in Aruba, we were going to um, get GPS coordinates for each of the standing stones on the island. So far, I have documented 11, but there are more. And um, I was going to do it with the local population also to help um, bring awareness to these sites and hopefully help to preserve them. Um, but now this has been put on hold. So once my daughter is done from homeschooling, I'm back to writing the book, and I would love to have the book done um, late summer or early fall because I am slated to hopefully, if the border opens, go to Aruba and Bonaire on July 24th for a month. So let's see. I don't know. Um, right now it's, it's booked. So I would love to go then because the border would just be open. There wouldn't be a lot of tourists. I could easily get around. Um, so we'll see. Obviously, the, everyone's safe, safety and health is, is number one. And if people would like to follow my work, they can go on Facebook and follow my page. It's the public page, Heather L. Arnold. I also have um, a group called Stone, Bones, and the Paranormal. Most of the um, things discussed on that in, in that group are from um, researchers such as ourselves, as well as uh, scientific research into um, paleoarchaeology, paleoanthropology, um, obviously because that connects with the giants. And I also have a page, The Islands of the Giants, where I'm posting some excerpts from the book. I also post a lot of great photos and, um, and also just interesting global information about giants and giant remains and um, and the history of the giants on Earth. That's interesting that you bring up the balanced uh, rocks in Aruba. You know, uh, we, I think uh, Barbara had Glenn Kreisberg mm. on oh, probably a year and a half ago. I think he's one of the uh, first guests she had after uh, I uh, joined. And uh, he has numerous photos of them throughout the New York area. So there we are back to another similarity between – North America, the Caribbean. Uh, it just seems like there's a global symbolism of doing certain uh, rituals. Yes, no question. I mean, the balanced stones in Aruba fit descriptions of balanced stones globally. Um, how, mm-hmm. for example, some of the stones in Aruba are the balanced stone, the one on the top is of a different composition than the one on the bottom. So one is maybe tonalite, one's limestone, one's diorite, um, and one's limestone. So it, even, you know, that's why the archaeologists actually became interested in what I, my research with regard to the balanced stones, because it couldn't be explained away to erosion, to any sort of geological occurrence, not when two different stones of two different compositions are on top of each other, as well as how in Aruba it's always a flat stone, a flat 
rounded stone with a massive boulder on top of it, but it points in the direction of another site. So all Hmm. the stones on the island point to another site on the island, which is quite fascinating and completely matches up with the balanced stones and what I have witnessed here in the northeast of the U.S. as well, as well as the southwest of the U.S. has balanced stones as well. I think out by the Great Lakes, there's some out by the Great Lakes too. You know, in the yeah. Superior area. I've been, I've been reading about those lately too, but I'm not sure if they're pointing at something, but they exist out there too, just like New England. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, you know, you know, Dennis has covered the uh, stones pointing in certain directions. Those documented on TV and uh, you know, Gary David. Uh, in his Orion Dimension, that, that was a book uh, we covered uh, two, three weeks ago w- with him. That the uh, you, you could just take Google Earth and see where all these uh, monuments are, are lined up. Uh, you know, he talks about the their, their position, like uh, you know the chakras, but you, you can still following that line and uh, end up in uh, New Zealand, and then you get you know, more evidence being uh, brought up of. You know, from uh, you know the folklore that uh, you know people uh, came from the west across the uh, waves, and you know they were our ancestors. You know, it's uh, it, it's all very interesting uh, to get into this um, global global consciousness maybe a, a, a right word uh to use uh, it's it's same idea is somehow getting around the world it, it's a fascinating subject and we'll have to talk about that hmm. next next time since we're down to less than a couple minutes i've heard so, about uh, sacred geometry too sacred geometry of the world mm-hmm. you know? that's a kind yeah. of thing. <clears throat> that fascinating topic and we'll have to do this again and get get into the sacred geometry. But, uh, you know, let's uh, uh, take a break for a few days, and uh, we will be uh, back next Monday and Tuesday with uh, some more shows to uh, start your week off just right. So I just want to th- thank you, Heather and Dennis, for being our guests tonight, and uh, we'll see everyone next week. Thank you very much, uh, Mark and Barbara and Heather. Great talking to all of you. Thank you so much.